what is up? Welcome back to Big Fat Five, a podcast financially supported by Big Fat Snare Drum. This week's guest is the one, the only Stanton Moore. I've always been a massive fan of Stanton, and this is a milestone for me to say the least. Stanton's all feel, and his choices certainly reflect that, but before I get ahead of myself, Stanton is a Grammy award-winning drummer, educator, and performer born and raised in New Orleans. His pride for his hometown is pretty unmatched, and in the early 90s, Moore helped found the New Orleans-based essential funk band Galactic. Moore launched his solo career in 1998, He has eight records under his own name. In 2022, Moore started a project with Grammy award-winning guitarist and producer Eric Krasno. The Krasno Moore Project is its name, and they have a current record called Book of Queens. Throughout his 25-year career, Moore has played and or recorded with a diverse group of artists, including Maceo Parker, Josh Stone, members of The Meters, Tom Morello, Corrosion of Conformity, Donald Harrison Jr., Charlie Hunter, Robert Walter, there's so many, just go, oh, and also Les Claypool, I wanted to name that, but just go check out his website, it's amazing. When it comes to education, he's released two books and three video projects. His Groove Alchemy book was picked by Modern Drummer as one of the top 25 instructional books of all time. And to continue his passion for teaching and to become more closely connected with his students, he recently launched his online drum academy called Stanton Moore Drum Academy. You can check that out at stantonmoredrumacademy.com. He's the man, and this one's for the books. I hope you enjoy the five records that shape Stanton Moore into the drummer he is today. Cheers. For this list, what was your criteria for an album to make this top five? My criteria for this top five were the things that moved me when I was younger and the things that shaped me as a player. The things that I heard that were those emotional light bulb moments that I was like, that is what I want to do with the rest of my life. I wanted to be able to convey that musically and in my playing, in my drumming. So these things that we're going to talk about in this top five are the things that moved me at the time that still move me to this day. Hell yeah. And so before we get into the actual albums, I want to talk a little bit about the things that influenced you. Well, I guess maybe the same time because you said when you were younger, but I want to talk about Marty Hurley and the impact he had on you in high school. If you want to talk about him a little bit. Yeah, sure. So 
my parents asked me, where do you want to go to high school? And I said, I want to go wherever is the best drum line in town. So they asked around, asked some of their friends, and they kept hearing that Brother Martin High School was the best drum line in town and a place that I should consider going. So in New Orleans at that time, you could start high school in eighth grade. So that's what I decided to do because I really wanted to be able to progress in my drumming as soon as possible. I wasn't studying with anyone yet. So I went to Brother Martin High School and you had to start off with an audition. So I went in and Mr. Hurley was having auditions. So there's one kid after another going into his into his office. So I get into his office and there's this older, gruff gentleman. And it's hilarious to think about at the time that he was probably younger than I am now <laughs> yes. at this time when I do the math. And he was very just, you know, matter of fact and just very gruff. And, you know, he was like messing around with some papers and probably like moving some around and and you know it's probably like the sheets that they had for their upcoming marching uh show you know he was always writing that stuff out and he was barely really looked at me and was like okay break down a double stroke roll and i was like uh i don't know what you mean and he was like Sigh. i was like this is an element about myself that i really that I really have come to appreciate. And I realized that it's just part of who I am. And I think it's part of what's gotten me to where I am is that I was humble enough to say, but what can you show me? He picked up the sticks and he went, and then I said, okay. And it's a play paradiddle. And I said, and I had been shown a paradiddle, but I couldn't remember it in this moment because my heart is racing and I'm just like of course oh, I've never seen anything like that in front of my eyes where you know this old dude picks up the sticks and just does something I've never seen anybody do and I was like holy shit I can't do that and then what I said could you show me and so because I just wanted to see him play some more right sure so, yeah oh so, big up sticks again paradiddle pow Beginner band, you don't know anything. And in my in my heart, I was crushed a little bit because, you know, I had a drum set and I was in honor band in elementary school. But I realized he was right. I don't know anything. And I was super excited to start this high school where beginner band was every day. So five days a week for an hour, 50 minutes, I got to get instruction from Marty Hurley around two Formica tables. And this was before he had the the wisdom to put pads on the tables. So it was loud. <laughs> and, you know, yeah. we're a bunch of little kids, you know, we're eighth and ninth graders, um, you know, whacking on a, on a Formica table. And he would, we spent two weeks on grip. And so we spent two weeks on, you know, learning his grip. Now, this is, in order to get for us at the time, it was six to seven high school kids all playing together, right? Now you want to modify this, you know, once you start playing on the drum set. And that's what he would tell us. He's like, look, just do it my way for now. Then you can take it and do whatever you want. But what happened was I got into that program and then I would see all these upperclassmen 
you know, the seniors and stuff who were winning all state and like getting scholarships to any school they wanted to go to. And they'd be like, look, I know he seems a little gruff at times, but just do what he's telling you and you will become a better player and then you can do whatever you want with it. And I could see these, these upperclassmen who were like, you know, playing in a way that I wanted to be able to get to at a point. So I just made it my mission to just learn from him. And then I realized that I was not progressing in a way that I wanted to progress. So I started taking privately from him um, in, in, as a sophomore in my, you know, in my 10th grade year. Started taking privately with him and I told him, you know, I want to be the captain of your drum line and I want to win all state by the time I'm a senior. He literally laughed. <laughs> he, would, he, he literally was like, oh, well, it's going to take a lot of work. But he did say this, if you're willing to do the work, I'll help you get there. And I said, I'm willing to do the work. He's all right, let's get to work. And so I'm forever grateful to him for that. And so, you know, I really started putting in the work. And, you know, this is a long story. I don't know how in depth you want to go, but go keep you know, going. Junior year, there was only one senior, and that was Kyle Malasson, who's my good friend, who is a great rock drummer, you know, great drummer all around. But he's played in a lot of different projects. He played with Dash Rip Rock for years, and now he's the drummer for the Imagination Movers, who are a great kids band who also had a show on Disney for a while. So, wow. He tours around doing shows with them, and he's in a whole bunch of other bands as well. But he's killing, killing drummer. But he was the only senior. You know, he's a great drummer, but in the spirit of Keith Moon, and he prides himself on being very energetic and and very kind of raucous, you know. And so he was not trying to be the captain of the drum line. So as a senior, he was not the captain of the drum line, which is fine because that's not what he wanted to do. But the point I'm getting to is that they had to draw from the junior class and make one of those guys the captain of the drum line. And at the time, I was not ready for that. So they made one of my junior colleagues the captain of the drum line. So I worked my ass off and I was like, okay, by the time I'm a senior, I'm going to be the captain of the drum line. Well, guess what happens when you boot out one of your co-classmates boot them out of position and admittedly I had been kind of the class clown when I was eighth grade freshman and then you know Kyle and I we got busted I think I was a freshman throwing drumsticks against the wall <laughs> uh, in one of the practice rooms and Marty Hurley made us write uh, he made us write lines I will not throw drumsticks against the wall. He made us write that like a thousand times. Like Bart on, Simpson? Yeah, exactly. On on paper. And oh that God. was one of the moments where I was like, what the hell am I doing? Like, this is ridiculous. I'm going to start getting to work. And so that shortly thereafter is when I went to him and said, look, I'm ready to get serious. I want to take privately with you. And he knew that I could do it if I would stop being a clown and would start working. So... That was a pivotal moment for me. And uh, by the time I made a senior and I had to beat out some of my other guys who were in the running for the drum captain and one of the guys who was the drum captain in junior year, what happens with that is that those guys don't really want to be your friend. Yeah. So, you know, I was kind of like, I had won the drum captain position, but these dudes who were in my grade 
didn't really like me very much. And so that also, I was like, well, I don't care. I'm going to work hard and, you know, do things, goals that I had for myself. Some of those goals were, you know, be on the cover of Modern Drummer, like be one of the best at what I do. And, you know, I only say this because, you know, who cares what happened in high school, but those moments, you know, trying to be the best that I could for Marty Hurley, this is all a big long answer to my experience with Marty Hurley, that at a young age, you know, still in high school, that made me say to myself, I'm gonna work my butt off and I'm going to be one of the best that I can be in the genre that I want to be in, in the niche that I want to be in, which the niche that I wanted to be in was some kind of personal amalgamation of my big three, which are Zigaboo Modalist from The Meters, Elvin Jones, played with John Coltrane for anyone who may not be aware, and John Bonham. And those big three are in this top five of records that we're going to talk about. So... I decided I was going to create my own niche and be some kind of blend of those three and work my ass off to be as good as I could be in this combination of those guys. And my time with Marty Hurley was really pivotal in helping me decide that this is what I'm going to work towards. Well, I'm happy you told that story because it's going to give people motivation who feel like they're falling behind or don't have motivation, can not only overcome that, but then everything you just said that were your goals, from an outside perspective at least, I'm not sure if you view it this way, but you've succeeded. I mean, obviously the material things, the modern drummer, all that jazz, but I think you are, you're, you're a singular player. That's great for people to hear. So thanks for telling that story, man. Yeah, well, thank you for saying that. And, you know, it... Just to follow up on some of that story, you know, it's like for the people who are listening, I realized I had potential, but I was not realizing that potential early in high school. And another pivotal thing that happened in that time, and we'll move on from this, but from eighth grade to freshman, you usually make the drum line as a freshman. And for me, I made the drum line as the third tritom player. At the time, we hadn't moved up to quads yet. Mm. It was just tritoms. So I, I made it as the third tritom player. And we tried to go to seven snare drums that year. One of the snare drummers was a senior. So they tried to move him up to snare, and he wasn't cutting it. So guess what happened? They moved him back to tritoms, and I wound up being the fourth tritom player guess what they didn't have a carrier for the four set of toms so i had to be in the stands at the football games i played in the stands then everybody else went down on the field i didn't get to go on the field i had to sit up in the stands by myself in my band uniform while everybody else went down on the field embarrassing then guess what happens once parade season comes and it's mardi gras well they didn't have the carrier, so I had to carry the band banner. Oh no! And and the other kid who carried was carrying the banner. They didn't have a band uniform for him, so all he had was his school uniform. So I had to wear my school uniform and oh. carry the band banner while I had all these kids that I went to grammar school with and new kids in high school. I would see them on the parade route and 
not only was I a band nerd, but I was a band nerd in school uniform carrying the banner. Talk about embarrassing and humiliating. So it was in that moment, and especially getting busted with Kamalasa on throwing sticks against the wall. Yeah. Those two moments made me realize, F this, <laughs> I'm done messing around. It's time to put in the work and and really work towards the goals. And, you know, those experiences were humiliating at the time and in the moment, but they made me realize, all right, it's time to get to work. What do you want to work towards? And I set those goals. And I'm so happy now and grateful for those moments. As I tell these stories and recant those moments, they're embarrassing, but I am very grateful for those. And how do you take those moments? As you said, if you feel like you're falling behind or you feel like you're not where you want to be, that's okay. Use that, take that, use it as fuel to power, empower you to get to where you do want to be. All right. Well, I do have so much more to talk about, but let's just hop into number one. And you did mention this is one of your one of your three. So the album is Live at Birdland. The artist is John Coltrane. The key track, but listen to the whole album. You said Afro Blue, which we'll listen to in a second. But the drummer, yeah, Elvin Jones. So take it away and then we'll listen to some Afro Blue. Yeah. So at the time, I think I heard this record when I was maybe 16 or 17 years old around this period of time that we're talking about when I was in high school. And, you know, I was playing in some punk rock kind of bands. You know, I was playing in a band called Captain Meathead with my good friend Scott Guyon, who is now a fantastic artist. Scott did the last three Jazz Fest posters. But we had a wow. band called Captain Meathead that was like drawing from, you know, some of the meter stuff and, you know, really inspired by, by the Minutemen and drawing from this like punk approach to funk and not really drawing from the Red Eye Chili Peppers as much as drawing from the Minutemen and drawing from then later Firehose and, you know, playing funk and groove music with a whole lot of energy and, and young attitude, you know. So I was playing in bands like that and I was going to some of these punk rock parties and then some of the, the guys who were a little older than me would pull me aside and say, man, you need to hear this, check this out. So my friend, from what I'm remembering, my friend Duke Strawby pulled me aside, put me in a, in a bedroom at one of these punk rock parties and turned on live at Birdland, John Coltrane. He'd said, just sit in here by yourself and listen to this. So I did and I was just so blown away because you know, I was starting to study and learn how to swing and you know, starting to study Miles Davis records and, you know, study Philly Joe. And, you know, one of the first records that I bought was Bag's Groove and that's Jimmy Cobb on drums. And so, you know, it's killing, but just very swinging and very refined and very grooving. And when I heard this, especially Afro Blue and with Elvin, I was like, oh my God, the energy that was coming from the drums and through the music and the energy that Elvin plays with, you know, is so, as you know, it's so energetic and it's so uninhibited and it's so just with reckless abandon. To me that it connected on such a deep level because it was like, holy crap, like Elvin was playing with punk rock energy and the way that he's just going at it and just really playing what he felt without any apologies and without any 
regard for what are people going to think about this. So that, to me, resonated as a young kid who had all this energy and who was, you know, playing in some punk rock bands. And I was like, oh, my God, you can play like that. I was like, holy crap. And it resonated to me and it literally like grabbed me emotionally, grabbed my heart from inside of my chest and changed me like forever. All right. Here's Afro Blue. So some of what I love about this is that you can hear that Elvin isn't playing anything repeated. It's all stream of consciousness. He's not playing, you know, he's not playing one thing once. He's not playing the same thing once. And you can hear that he is inspired by the soloist and the soloist is throwing him ideas. He's throwing ideas back and, you know, they're going back and forth, whether it's with McCoy or whether it's with, with Coltrane. Also at the time, you know, I was playing like in the high school stage band and I was encouraged to keep everything really straightforward and, you know, not overplay. And so hearing this was like, oh my God, like, you know, nobody's telling him not to overplay or to keep it simple. It's like he's just emoting on the drums and hearing his emotional energy, his emotional interplay, and all of that just like grabbed me by the heart, you know? And that just really struck a chord with me and I and made me really want to incorporate some of Elvin's attitude and his energy and his emotional effectiveness into my playing. Maybe some note for note stuff eventually I would try to incorporate into groove things. But really what I was trying to do is take the concept of affecting people emotionally and take that and figure out how I can do that in what I do in a groove context and a funk context. And that's how Elvin has influenced me. Not so much in that you know, you know, of course I have learned Elvin transcriptions, but I'm not going to try to take measure, you know, 32 of this solo and I'm going to figure out how to do that in a funk context. Well, I have done that a little bit, but the majority of how Elvin influences me is trying to take his spirit and figure out how I can be inspired by that and try to convey emotion 
in my playing. And it's not going to be the same way that Elvin does, but, but uh, trying to do that in my own way is how Elvin has inspired me a lot. And uh, Ian Froman, who, if you're not familiar with him, an amazing yeah, jazz player. Great player. player. Absolutely. Uh, he was talking about how he was able to study with Elvin later in his life in Florida. And he had all these questions about Love Supreme, all these things. And, and Elvin was like, I, I was just playing, man. You know, so like Elvin would probably have to transcribe himself, too, because it's just all stream of consciousness. Oh, yeah, man. And I'm sure, you know, and. I have a gig tonight where I'm going to get to swing out some and, you know, playing with this great bass player, Peter Harris, and great guitar player, Steve Mazikowski and Tony DeGrotti, who's a great saxophone player. And I'm so looking forward to that tonight because I get to do a little bit of that where, you know, you're just interacting with the music. You know, I don't sound anything like Elvin, but I, I'm inspired mm -hmm. by his freedom, you know, and his emotional you know, emotional impact that he has on people. And I would love to hear some of what Ian says, man. I, know, I do know that he got to study with, with Elvin. I've read a lot of uh, interviews with Ian and, you know, I'm envious of the time that he got to spend with Elvin. So that's, you know, I would love to, have you done a podcast with him? Yeah, he's probably about a month ago he was on. One of my favorite episodes. He's a storyteller, has so yeah. many good... Uh, Young Christensen talks about meeting... It's He's got a... It's a really fun episode if people haven't listened, and I hope you do too. Um, yeah, we'll Ian's listen great. to it for sure. Hey, y'all. I wanted to... <laughs> I can't say. I wanted to talk to you about a drum I've recently received from Preston at Vessel Drum Co., it's an ocean patinaed 14 by five and a half snare drum, and it's incredible. It's got a 1.5 millimeter shell, brass shell, with 10 lugs, chrome over brass, triple flange hoops, a trick uh, three position strainer, 42 strand wires. It's lovely, it's loud, and it cuts and records as beautiful as a piece of butter cake. And, and Preston actually, this is why it's called the Ocean Patina, is he covers the shell with seaweed and then drops it in the ocean for a certain period of time. And then it patinas with all these crazy cool designs. And if you all remember, Preston was actually one of the first guests on the podcast. When I first started out, I didn't really know what the Big Fat Five format was going to be or if it was going to be even Big Fat Five at all. But I went to his garage, his his you know where he makes all of his drums. It was really cool. He walked me through the episode is essentially from start to finish what happens with a drum, and it was it was a really fun episode. It's now archived at bigfatsnaredrum.com, just because it doesn't fit the format of Big Fat Five. I want you to get back to the show, but go check it out. This drum is beautiful, and he actually let me use it on an Eve Six tour, and I didn't keep it and I regretted it ever since then just because I was trying to pinch pennies at the time and I just kept thinking about it and so the opportunity to get it again was presented and it is one of my favorite drums so the ocean patinaed 14 by five and a half snare drum check it out reach out to me go to vessel drum co the instagram's just at vessel drum co and check it out it's amazing it's beautiful sounds great bye all right, so number two, the album is 20 Greatest Hits. The artist is James Brown. And again, you said just all the tracks, uh, everyone should. But the drummers, um, Melvin Parker, Jabo Starks, Stubblefield, all over the place. And and yeah, so talk a little bit about, about that, and then we'll maybe choose a song. Yeah, so the James Brown 
school approach of funk is completely different than the meters approach to funk and both to me equally funky in different ways and then with james brown the more that i dug into his music and started to discover you know the nuances and the intricacies and the differences between melvin parker chavo starks clyde stubblefield and realize that wow they truly are individual drummers and individual voices and individual approaches and especially while i was working on groove alchemy and transcribing each of those guys and then learning the differences and you know realizing that jabo starks plays a little bit more on the swing end of the spectrum and oftentimes his right hand would be playing which has a skip beat in it. And I got to have dinner with Jabo and Clyde and I got to sit next to Jabo and tap on his knee and be like, man, I love what you're doing. And, you know, I tap that out, you know. And I said, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but to me, it seems like that's highly influenced from the ride cymbal pattern, swinging out on the ride cymbal and he said, aha, uh -huh. and he pointed at me and pointed into my chest. He goes, aha, uh -huh. because you hear that, huh? I was like, yeah. He goes, a lot of people don't pick up on that. He's like, it's totally coming from the ride symbol pattern. I was like, oh my God, it's amazing. So, you know, he's filling in with his grace notes. And that requires a little bit of independence. And so noticing that and that his his style is a little bit more on the swing end of the spectrum. And then Clyde, in general, plays either eighth notes or sometimes quarter notes or 16th notes. But when he plays something on, on the hi-hat, it remains consistent. So, you know, with Cold Sweat, it, the right hand stays consistent and then you know if you if you you know have something like i got the feeling you know i got the but the right hand all the filling in is in the left hand on the right hand it's consistent and of course funky drummer and chicken and all these other things that he played with with consistent 16th notes in the right hand that's all stays consistent so it was really interesting to discover these subtle, but really not that subtle, these differences between Jabo and Clyde and of course, Melvin Parker and all that he did, especially on Maceo Parker, All the King's Men, which is, you know, a different uh, record than this James Brown record that we're talking about. But Melvin Parker's style and then him getting away from the two and four on the backbeat on Maceo Parker, All the King's Men, and then David Garibaldi totally talking about how that record just opened up his whole approach. David Garibaldi realized that you don't need to play two and four on every measure for something to be funky. And that, you know, Melvin Parker, he really changed funk drumming with that Maceo Parker record because he influenced David Garibaldi and everything that David Garibaldi did. So, you know, those three guys really, you know, changed funk drumming in different ways, you know? And from my 
research and what I can find, you know, Melvin is the guy who really started going, went, set, 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 on the hi-hat, playing the, the upbeat, the open hi-hat on the upbeat of one and the upbeat of three. And he started doing that on Out of Sight and, well, really on I've Got the Feeling and Papa's Got a Brand New Bag. And a lot of people consider Papa's Got a Brand New Bag to be one of the first real funk recordings. And, you know, it's pivotal because it's got that that upbeat on the end of one and the end of three. And then Jabo took that and he incorporated that in his way and then added a skip beat to it. So Melvin Parker going, then Jabo, and then Clyde filling all that in with with so many more grace notes. And Clyde would call them sometimes chatter notes. So that hitting the backbeat and a grace note right after it, Clyde would call that a chatter note. So, but what's interesting is that both Jabo and Clyde utilized Melvin's innovation of the open hi-hat on the end of one and the end of three. And then they took that and they added their own thing to it. And so, you know, those three guys, to me, work hand in hand, taking some of the things that came before them and working with that. Even though I don't think this song is on the 20 greatest hits, but it's important to mention Clayton Filiaz playing on I've Got Money because that's the first time that I can really hear the backbeat being displaced. Mm. And then Clyde took from that, but then he incorporated that displaced backbeat with Melvin Parker's upbeats on the hi-hat opening on and of one and of three. So all of those innovations and the way that they influenced each other within the James Brown camp, that's all very notable, you know, very, very important. And then it's, so for me, the whole James Brown school of funk, you, you have to spend time digesting that. And then it's really interesting to hear how some of that, you know, especially with some of the open hi-hat and the displaced backbeat, that shows up in the meters and shows up in things like Look a Pie Pie and, of course, all kinds of uh, other grooves that, that Zig came up with. But, you know, those innovations, for me, if you want to get into funk, you have to spend time and I would say equal amounts of time with the James Brown approach to funk and the meters approach to funk. I love that. Everyone listening, listen to this again. This was such a good lineage of of that style of drumming. I love that. Um, is there a song you want to play? I mean, you mentioned so many, but um, you kind of talked about Papa's Got a Brand New Bag as kind of one of the beginnings in a certain way of that, uh, that hi-hat. Do you want to just play that maybe? Sure. All right, here we go. Thank you. 
also just the sound of those records. My God. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, since we're listening to it, it's notable for the listeners to note that that's a cross stick. So he's Mm. playing that backbeat with a cross stick, which gives that super dry and impactful backbeat, which, you know, sometimes we approximate a sound like that with a super high pitched and dead sounding snare, which sounds great. But to me, what's so great about some of this James Brown material, when we go back and listen to it, is that it was so innovative in ways that were so far ahead of their time and things that we're doing today. It's like when you go back and listen to some of these earlier records, you realize people think that's new, that's cute, but it's like, man, come on. as referencing things that happened, you know, so many years ago. And you listen to I've Got Money, and that's at almost 160 beats per minute, which is where drum and bass tempos start. You listen to Clayton Filios playing on that, and it sounds like drum and bass back in 1962. On that record, that uh, greatest hits, do they have um, I've Got the Feeling? I believe I, yes, we do. Want to listen to it? Okay. Yeah, so let me say real quick. Sure. Okay, so now that we've listened to Melvin and his playing, let's now be aware of what he was doing with that open hi-hat. And then, you know, we know that Clayton Filial was displacing the backbeat. So now let's listen to what Clyde Stubblefield did with those influences, displacing the backbeat, getting syncopated with things, adding his secret ingredient, which was all these grace notes and chatter notes, and, you know, taken from the guys before him, but then putting his special Clyde Stubblefield thing on it. Let's listen to all of that put together in the song, I've Got the Feeling. All right, here we go. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I got the feeling Baby, baby, I got the feeling You don't know What to do to me Leave my heart heavy Down in misery And of course, James is killing it. Yeah. Wow. Unbelievable, man. And talk about goals. And I set a goal for myself to, you know, learn that beat. And, you know, I've gotten to a place where I can kind of do it justice, but nowhere where Clyde, you know, I mean, Clyde is Clyde. But my point is, it took me years, years of shedding to get to where I could play the ghost notes the way Clyde is. And, you know, what's interesting to note is that He's playing a grace note before an accent and a grace note after the accent. So he's playing tit-tat-tit, And it took me years of shedding that. And I'm saying that so that any of the listeners who feel like you'll never get it, that's not true. You'll get it, but practice it slow for years. Yeah. Make it part of your daily routine and bring it up one BPM a day or 1 BPM a week if you have to. And eventually, it might take years, but you'll get it. <laughs> All right, so number three, the album's Look Up Pie Pie. The artist is The Meters. The drummer is Zigaboo. And 
Yeah, all the tracks, but uh, take it away and then we'll listen to some Zigaboo. So what's amazing about Zig's playing and the meters is that they, of course, were influenced by some of the things that they were hearing and then they put their own spin on it, being influenced by the things that happened in the streets of New Orleans. So, you know, being from here, I can hear how Zig might take, you know, some open hi-hat stuff and some displaced backbeat stuff that was happening in the James Brown camp, but then playing it at a slower tempo and playing it with a feel that is in between straight and swing that is coming from some of the New Orleans snare drum stuff that we hear in a second line and a brass band context. So when we listen to this next tune, try to listen for, you're going to hear some of the James Brown influence of the open hi-hat on the and of one and of three and the displaced backbeat, but it's got a feel that is unique to New Orleans. That is just so infectious and so unbelievably funky. Let's listen to Look of Pie Pie because it's got those elements that we were just discussing. You'll hear some of the similarities that are coming from James Brown. And now that you know, displaced backbeat coming from Clayton Filiaw and in the open hi-hat on the end of one and three coming from Melvin Parker and then filling in some of the stuff coming from Clyde Stubblefield. But then we're going to hear Zig's approach and his, his way that he's doing this. Love it. Here we go. innovations that Zig is is bringing into all of this is you've got the that boom got boom boom so he's putting that syncopated bass drum after the backbeat and then some of the other stuff is drawing from the James Brown influence but he's bringing in but boom and then when you get to that break and then he's playing that drum break and then he's playing displacement before anybody thought to call it displacement i mean unbelievably funky unbelievably innovative but from a very organic approach He's not like, okay, let me think about how mathematically I could displace this. And ooh, I really want to put in some linear stuff and I want to make this, this little displaced thing happen. He's not thinking like that. He's just playing organically, just like we talked about with Elvin. I was like, man, I don't know. I was just playing, right? And I'm sure, you know, Zig was just playing. But 
He was doing these things in 1969, beat displacement. And then, you know, Sissy Strut is, is really linear, you know? It's essentially linear. He wasn't thinking of it that way, but it's very linear. You know, so that's some of the things that, that make this drumming so beautiful is that, yes, to use your words, unbelievably funky, but then also unbelievably innovative in that, you know, in the late 60s, doing things that we started doing more of in the 70s, you know, beat displacement and linear drumming, which everybody's doing that to the max now. Mm -hmm. But this stuff was happening in the late 60s. All right. Going on to uh, the third person you have mentioned uh, at the beginning of the of the conversation, John Bonham. The album's physical graffiti. The artist is, of course, Led Zeppelin. Embellish a little bit on what John Bonham did for you. Yeah, so a lot about John Bonham that I love are some of the same elements that I love about Elvin Jones and that I love about Zigaboo Motorist. And it took me a while to figure this out, but you know, what I started to recognize is, you know, I love things that grab me emotionally. And then, okay, so we know that, but what is it about it that's grabbing me? And so I started to recognize that most of my favorite drummers are pretty unorthodox, you know? These are guys who play with their own approach, they play with their own, their own vocabulary, their own language. For instance, like with Zig, he's gripping the stick in between the middle finger and the forefinger. If he would go into, you know, a lesson with somebody, they would try to change that, you know? And Stuart Copeland also plays with that grip, you know? And Stuart, another one of my favorite drummers, right? Pretty unorthodox, <laughs> um, but has his own unique individual way. And I think what's interesting to note is that these guys, Stuart and Zig, two of my favorites, they're both playing with a grip that would have been changed by a drum teacher, right? You know, a lot of what Elvin is playing, people would have said, you can't do that. You know, you're playing too much. That's too too much information. If Elvin would have auditioned for my high school stage band, they they probably would have tried to contain what he's doing, and that would have ruined it. <laughs> so I realized that trying to be the best stage band drummer or the best drummer for you know some of these straightforward orthodox applications that's not what i wanted to do you know and so my favorite drummers might have gotten kicked out of some of the ensembles the school ensembles that i was trying to play for and so that was very very pivotal for me to recognize well i don't want to do that i don't want to be orthodox i don't want to be able to play note for note transcriptions of this very tame thing or this very tame thing and Studying with Johnny Vodakovich was very important for me because he encouraged me to not learn things note for note off of records. And for me to kind of try to come up with my own approach to things. And he would say, yeah, little brother, put your thumbprint on it. You know, he would give me things to work on and I would go home and I would come up with 12 different variations of that and then show it to him. And he'd be like, yeah, man, keep doing that. Keep putting your thumbprint on it. Oh crap. We've been in here for three hours. I would have been in his living room for three hours. He said, oh, crap, I got to make it to the gig. All right, bro, you got to go. And he like, 
you know, pat me on the butt on the way out and be like, thanks for the lesson, little brother. I got to go to my gig. See you. And, and, but he would encourage me to do that. And then to where we would just lose ourselves coming up with creative new ideas, you know, and he really encouraged me to do that. So with this physical graffiti, you know, sure. I love John Bonham and, you know, he is, you know, a huge influence on me, but I didn't play to this record in a way that I was trying to play note for note, John Bonham things, you know, which my good friend, George Flutus is, is just astoundingly good at that. He can play note for note, John Bonham stuff. And I, it's amazing to me. I don't, I don't know how he does it. He doesn't transcribe it. I don't think he learns it by listening. And then he plays note for note and he can play note for note performances of this live 1975 performance. And then he knows the differences between that and live 1977. And in the record version, I was like, Oh my God. And then he'll sit down and play note for note art Blakey or Philly Joe. And it's like, Oh my God. It's like, he has this, this almost like savant ability to do that. And in different genres. And what's really cool is when he'll play Bonham on a bebop kit. It's <laughs> <laughs> so cool, man. But I realized that that's, that's not my forte. I do that a little bit, but I would play along to physical graffiti and like come up with my own, my own ideas, use that as an inspiration, come up with my own, my own beats, my own concepts, my own things that I would want to use and then use that. And then I would, you know, write them down or remember them. And then I would come up with things inspired by Bonham and then put that into either Galactic or other, you know, concepts. And, you know, what's so fun for me making records with things like, like Corrosion of Conformity. And now we're working on another record that I'm going to do with them. Be influenced by Bonham and Elvin and Zig and then try to come up with ideas that'll work with COC. And what's so cool is that Pepper Keenan and, you know, Woody and Mike Dean, they love that. It's like, yeah, this is great. Cause some of those earlier heavy drummers like Bill Ward, Ian Pice, um, obviously Bonham, those guys were influenced by Max Roach and Art Blakey and James Brown. And they were coming up with their own approaches to heavy stuff by mixing some of that stuff. So when I come to a heavy record, I try to come at it like those older drummers by being influenced by some of these classic drumming influences and then doing it in a heavy way. So that's why it kind of works, you know? So yes, I've been influenced by Bonham, but not in a way that I'm trying to play his stuff note for note. Sure. Um, yeah, which song would you like to play from Physical Graffiti? So yeah, we're going to check out In My Time of Dying because, you know, there's this killing groove where he's also laying into the snare drum as part of the groove. And to me, that's very reminiscent of some of the stuff that Zig would do and also some of the stuff that we might do in New Orleans where we're really incorporating the snare into the groove. And I can hear, you know, I've talked about this in my book, Groove Alchemy, where Zigaboo Modalis and John Bonham are way more similar than they are different. And especially if you listen to Look a Pie Pie and we listen to how Zig was displacing that backbeat 
And then we listen to John Bonham and his playing on Whole Lot of Love, and he's displacing the backbeat. And to me, they're both influenced by Cold Sweat, but both of these guys play in between straight and swing. They were both born in 1948. And then if you listen to John Bonham's playing in the middle section of How Many More Times when they're doing the Hunter midsection, that, all that snare drum grooving is very similar to some of the stuff that Zig does on the live version of Africa from Live on the Queen Mary. They're very, very similar. So, you know, these guys both were influenced highly by Earl Palmer, too. And so, you know, I find a lot of similarities in those guys. And so that's why I want to listen to In My Time of Dying, because this drumming, especially, you know, the snare drum stuff is so similar to some of the stuff that that you might hear from Zig. And I just I love it. And I've tried to you know, come up things that sound like some kind of mix between Zig and Bonham. Perfect. unbelievably funky and then when you hear him go to the hi-hat so that two hands on the hi-hat that's totally a zig thing i hear so many similarities man and then that on the bass drum that's an that's zig plays that all the time so it's like the similarities to me between bonham and zig there's so many and this is this is one of the specific instances but i used to play along to this record like on all, almost daily basis, but not try to play note for note, try to come up with my own things. And what's so cool is also that snare drum. And it's, he's carrying that across the bar line. That's so inventive and so creative and so unorthodox. Mm. If you would try to do that, in some instances, people would be like, uh-uh, don't do that. But Bonham didn't ha- have anybody telling him, uh-uh, don't do that. He had people egging him on. So that is, you know, so creative, so inventive and unorthodox and funky and so similar to Zigaboo Moto East and New Orleans. It's just like so cool and mind blowing to me. And of course, you know, there's famous pictures of Bonham and, and Led Zeppelin hanging out in New Orleans under street signs in the French Quarter. So I know that he was influenced by by New Orleans. I know, you know, Sidney Smith, this great photographer, he took a picture of John Bonham with his arm around Professor Longhair. And that was Zeppelin in New Orleans at a record release party for one of the records. And there they had 
Professor Longhair there because they love Professor Longhair. So, you know, once I started realizing all that, I was like, oh man, I love Led Zeppelin. I love John Bonham. No wonder, because to me, there's a lot of influence coming from the same things that I love about the meters and a lot of the New Orleans stuff. All right. So the next one, the number five, I have, you just mentioned Professor Longhair. I really don't know much about Professor Longhair. So I'm, I'm, I'm excited you uh, have this on your list. So the album is Crawfish Fiesta. The artist, of course, is Professor Longhair. And the drummer is Johnny Vidakovich, who was an instructor of yours, uh, who we mentioned earlier. So please take it away and then we'll listen to some Professor Longhair. Yeah. So as you just said, this is Johnny playing with Fass. Now, Fass, especially in New Orleans, is considered the architect of funk. And a lot of what he did, you know, with the blending, some of the Caribbean ideas and some of the New Orleans boogie-woogie piano stuff and blending those things together and coming up with an approach that was uniquely funky and, and very individualistic. And it influenced the meters. It influenced the Neville brothers. It influenced all of the Mardi Gras Indian stuff that came out where, you know, you're, you're blending funk musicians with New Orleans Indians. You know, Fess is the root of all that stuff. And he, he influenced Dr. John and James Booker and everything that came after him. Not only can you hear the influence, but everybody said, oh yeah, everything starts with Fess as far as New Orleans funk. And he had records coming out starting in 1948. And he has some of the most famous, most well-known Mardi Gras songs. But what's great about this record that we're about to hear is that he started getting some recognition in his later years. And then he put together a band that toured. And this record was made after they did some touring. So this is one of the tightest records that you're going to hear with Fess, and this does have Johnny on it, who is my teacher and mentor and spiritual advisor. And Johnny also on this record is playing some of his unique snare drum funk ideas. So I really learned a lot from Johnny about how to play on the snare drum and really loosen it up and then really take, you know, what I learned from Marty Hurley, but I had to learn how to loosen up a lot. And Johnny really helped me with that. And Johnny, this record, he played what we're about to listen to, which is Her Mind Is Gone. He played this beat for me and then walked into the kitchen to make some coffee. And he's like, you know, see if you can figure out what's going on with this. And I couldn't. But once he showed me what was going on, I was like, oh, my God, this is like so killing. Because when he's playing on the snare drum, you can take the right hand, put it on the hi-hat, put it on the ride cymbal, put it on the cowbell, put it on the rims and just moving that right hand around, you got a whole bunch of different things. So this beat was pivotal for me in realizing that, oh, I can take this beat, I can use this beat, but then also use my variations of it. But not just this beat, but the idea of coming up with something that sounds great on the snare drum, but then taking the right hand and moving it all these different places. So this beat really changed a lot about my playing helped me come up with a lot of different variations and so i mean this lesson that i had with johnny 
this, you know, one hour with Johnny where he played me this, this changed a lot for my playing. So we're gonna listen to Her Mind Is Gone right now. I've done lessons on this. I mean, it's basically right, 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 and, and then flam, flam, right? So right, right, right foot, blap, blap. So that's the first part of it. Got, got. And then once you get got, got, it's got, got, goon. So in the right hand, it's like almost like a skip beat, right? Then the rest of it is just right, left, right, right, left, right, right, left. Got, got. It's like the hippest thing in the world. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> and it, it works for so many different things, you know? And so once I realized that and figured it out, then I came up with lots of different variations on the actual sticking. But the concept of having something that works but sometimes, you know, like right, left, right, left, right, left, that's great. And that works on the snare. That works if you're going to play it on the hi-hat. But if you go move the right hand to a cowbell and you want to keep the left hand on the snare, right, left, right, left, right, left doesn't work anymore. You know, this is kind of like a sticking that incorporates flams and you're not going to find it verbatim in stick control or any other, you know, rudimental kind of application. Johnny's not thinking of it like a rudimental thing. He's just playing a beat, right? But when you break it down and figure out what it is, it's so hip, man. It's just, <laughs> it's so cool. And so that changed a lot about, about my playing. And then, you know, the saxophone player on that recording, I'm going to get to play with him tonight. You know, so that's part of what I love about New Orleans. It's like some of my favorite records, I still get to play with some of these musicians um, on a daily basis. Is Johnny still around? Is he still? Oh yeah. Awesome. Yeah. He's still around and, and playing his butt off. So he plays this gig I'm about to play tonight. He'll play this gig sometimes. So Tuesday nights at the Bayou bar, sometimes it's me, sometimes it's Johnny V, sometimes it's Shannon Powell. And then I have a Monday night piano trio gig. And if I can't make it, I'll have Johnny V go play it. You got a good life, man. That's awesome. <laughs> Not bad. Yeah. Uh, well, that's your big fat five. And uh, I am so excited to, for people to hear this episode because you went down such... I can tell why you're such a good educator. <laughs> you, you really compartmentalize information and express it really well. And so this was really fun for me selfishly. I don't even care if people hear this. I'm just happy I was here. Um, but this is a, a chance for you to do some self-promotion. I know this is sometimes the bane of people's existence, but uh, 
I know you have um, a Krasno More record or the Krasno More Project uh, Book of Queens that you uh, did that you recorded up at Levon's place. Who Levon's one of my all-time favorites. And I saw a video of you actually playing on his red kit, which I'm so jealous of. But uh, yeah, talk about what people can go check out. Um, and then, yeah, talk about your residencies. If people are in New Orleans, they can come check you out. Floor is yours. Sure. So the Krasno Moore project, as you just very eloquently described, I don't need to say anything more about what it is, but it's it's an organ trio with myself, Eric Krasno, and Eric Finland on keys. And on the record, we had some great special guests in Branford Marsalis and also Robert Randolph and Corey Henry on keys. And that record, the first record that we did, it's a tribute to women in music. So it's all instrumental versions of things from Aretha Franklin, Nina Simone, all the way over to Amy Winehouse and Billie Eilish and all kinds of points in between. So I'm really proud of that record. And we did it at Levon's and I got to play his red drums. And that was really a spectacular experience. And I'm very proud of it. And if people want to check that out, it's on my Spotify or Apple Music. It's on Kraz's, Eric Krasno, Spotify and Apple Music as well. And you'll just find it under Krasno More Project under either one of our channels. And then other things, I've been putting up a lot on YouTube. So my YouTube channel, I'm really excited about. I've really been growing it. I'm planning on releasing on a more regular basis. And what the YouTube channel has is some abbreviated lessons and some behind the scenes pieces that we're doing. So coming out soon is a tour of Tipitina's. The members of Galactic and myself, we purchased Tipitina's, our favorite venue in the world. We purchased it in 2018. You know, it was one of the joys of my career and my life that we've been able to purchase our favorite venue and to try to position it in a way that it'll last for a long time so that people can continue to enjoy it. And, you know, we did a, a tour of tips that's coming out on my YouTube channel soon. So I'm really starting to get very excited about what we're doing with YouTube because uh, it's some of the abbreviated lessons from my drum academy. So that's another thing I'd love to mention. My drum academy, I always have a 14-day free trial. So people can always come and try it out for free for 14 days. But my drum academy, I'm very proud of. That's where I've been filming a lot of my educational material, putting that up. And then, of course, Instagram, if people want to come find me on Instagram. But the quickest way to engage with me at no cost is just come find me on YouTube, find me on Instagram. And if you dig what I'm doing, then uh, you can come and, and, you know, develop a deeper relationship with me through the Drum Academy. I'm always in there answering questions and people have direct access to me all the time. And I'll, I'll even film videos on questions that I'm getting, you know, a lot about, and I'll film little gorilla videos answering those questions quickly. And then I eventually make video lessons and the PDFs and all the courses. So all of the educational material that I have, that's all inside of the Academy. So that's like the full Monty. If you really want the full offerings of what I'm doing, that's inside of the Academy. But if you're still wanting to just, hmm, I don't know if I like this guy that much yet. Let me just come and check him out on YouTube and Instagram 
that's that's fine. So so I appreciate the opportunity for you uh, to give me to let me talk about those things, and then let me let me give you a little bit of a plug, so that you know that I'm not full of it. So what I travel with all the time is a big fat snare on top of my snare, and you can see that it's gotten some wear and tear. And I literally we landed last night. And I haven't touched this, and this is the way it travels all the time. And so this rides on my snare, and then I put it on the side of me so that it's on every gig. So then when I need it, what I'll do is I'll loosen up the snares a little bit and then put this on top, and it gives me a different snare sound, as you know. But I'm not just doing this because we're doing this podcast. (laughs) You can see it's worn, and it's here. This is where it rides every day on every gig and then you know i've got my titanium snare here with my uh stantmore drum company beautiful signature snare but this stuff comes with me everywhere that i go so i'm not just doing that because we're doing the podcast i do it because it's true now well my god stan that's (laughs) we can't get a better (laughs) endorsement than that so thanks man yes indeed so I also do um, a few when I'm home. I do a few uh, in-person lessons, and this is most of my students' favorite book. Um, awesome. For people that are, you and Mark Wessels did this, the A Fresh Approach to the Drum Set. It's not just a bunch of notation. I mean, you go into such, you and Mark go into such good detail over all these different styles. And if this is even the tiniest little glimpse of how the Stanton Moore Academy, how much information and history you get from that, I think it's worth worth its weight in gold whatever if it's on sale or not i think people should definitely sign up for it because i love the way you compartmentalize information and express it man it's amazing thank you thank you and yeah that book is always it's always available through my store Mm -hmm. if you wanted to uh get it and usually there is a signed option there in my store so thank you for that plug yeah and you know mark's just a brilliant brilliant guy and you know, since you mentioned his books, if anybody's looking to develop their their hands and their snare drum rudimental knowledge, his book, A Fresh Approach to Snare Drum, has become a bestseller in a lot of markets. And uh, and it's it's basically the teachings of Marty Hurley put into a book, mm. and it's really really well put together. And I've worked through it a couple times because I've presented stuff in it. So his his way of presenting all that material and the developmental way that he does it, you know, anybody who's like, man, I really want to get my rudimental stuff together, that book is the book for it. And then if you're looking to get your foundation and your fundamentals together on the drum set, Fresh Approach to Drum Set is the comprehensive course for that. I love it. I'll let you go. I know you have a sessions, but... Thank you, Nick, for all the help, and thank you, Stanton. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you, Ben. Thanks for including us. All right. Have a good day. All right, brother. Take care. All right. This week's little skinny one is from Jared Carnes. Jared says, hey, I live in Chicago. I uh, have been playing officially since I was 11, started my first band at 13, and have been playing in different bands Everything from punk to progressive rock with a couple forays into alt country ever since. Now playing with Juna and there, there, there. All there spelled the three different ways and on tour all year. His IG is 
Carid Jarns, which is the first letters of his name switched. Uh, love that. And so his pick is the album is Red, the artist is King Crimson, the release year is 1974, and the track he wants to point out is One More Red Nightmare, and the drummer is Bill Bruford, and here's what he has to say about this track. So this song ticks all the boxes as far as being a great King Crimson song. It's an exemplary prog rock song and an influential song that is not overplayed. Bill Bruford's incorporation of jazz chops into heavy rock songs, before we were calling it fusion, and long before Smashing Pumpkins were a thing, is really revolutionary, even more so that he was incorporating trash percussion and cymbal sax to cover for the departure of their percussionist. Some fills sound like the drums are falling down or up the stairs. Using these elements, the song has just a really unique sound and great groove and takes you on a journey. Complete that with Robert Fripp's guitar wizardry during the only time the band ever recorded as a trio. Non-prog artists like Kurt Cobain and Thurston Moore have pointed to this album as an influence. And at first that might seem weird, but when you hear the darkness and the artsiness and the fact that they were making do with only three people making as much energetic sound as they could, it makes sense. So here is One More Red Nightmare. And thank you, Jared, for taking the time. the show if you're listening on a platform that allows ratings and reviews do that it helps more people find the show so it'll get bigger and better and hopefully all the chance to sell out one day but you'll be an og listener that can brag to all your friends anyways why don't you go and check us out at bigfatsnaredrum.com and follow us on all the socials just search for big fat snare drum and you will find us the show is edited in part using isotope rx audio editor it's amazing so go check that out at isotope.com and thanks again to Gunnar Olsen for the theme music. Bye.